Aloha Kako. Welcome to the Aloha Friday Conversation, an hour of art, culture, and ideas in Hawaii. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Really glad to see Russell and Harrison right across the way there, 10 feet away. Hey, they're waving. We're going to begin now with effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on the most vulnerable in our communities. In 2019, the annual point in time count showed 6,448 homeless individuals statewide. Of those, 4,453 were here on Oahu. Laura Thielen is executive director of Partners in Care, PIC, a coalition of homeless service providers who work with youth, they work with landlords, and they can really offer a view of what's happening on the street. Two weeks ago, PIC launched a survey app for assessing possible COVID-19 symptoms. Thielen says they can now map all the current COVID information they gather there on the street. Well, we've had over 100 assessments done in the first week, um, and it's telling us that most people that we're encountering are asymptomatic, so that's good news. Uh, but it also indicated one person, uh, a couple of people who had slight symptoms, one individual did get tested, and fortunately, he came up as negative. So that's you know a very simple thing that we've put into place that may help to save people's lives, but just as important, really help our outreach workers, help them figure out what's going on in the community. What is going on, Laura, from what you can see? Well, Are there changes on the street in terms of numbers of people, locations, and, and what they're doing? Well, it's becoming a, a little bit more difficult as time goes on. Outreach workers know their areas very well, but mm -hmm. people are moving quite a bit right now. We have restarted again. So catching up with those folks and making sure we could stay connected with them is very important. We've also seen a lot of people that, due to this current crisis, they might be more willing to go into shelter which is um, a wonderful thing if it works for them. For those people who are scared or, or feel insecure out, in, out on the streets, we have more options now, um, one of those being the post location out at Kihei Lagoon. Okay. Yep. Places like the post are providing another opportunity for people to uh, quarantine um, in place. They've opened up their third campsite, they being uh, the Honolulu Police Department. This program is completely run by HPD, and each site has um, probably about 20 to 30 tents, and those are three-man tents, but most of them are only occupied by one person or a couple. And the way they're working it is there's a red zone, so you have a couple of days to figure out if this is the area that you want to stay in. And if it is, after that first couple of days, they will go into lockdown. Um, people can leave if they would like to, but they cannot come back in once the quarantine period has started. It's going to be extremely important for providers to reach out once they've completed that first quarantine to try and work with these folks to see if they can get them into other types of housing that would be more appropriate. Uh, and so you say that'll be difficult? It will be difficult, but um, it's not impossible. Uh, mm -hmm. Amazingly, we're still able to place people into rental units out in the community. And I give a huge shout out to those landlords who are willing to open their units to us. What are you seeing with youth on the streets? Yeah, it's um, the youth on the street is, is a big worry of ours. Um, there are very few programs that actually work with the youth, um, and the drop-in centers have had to be shut down for this time. And that's a really difficult thing for these providers to deal with because there's not enough shelter for youth at this point. Laura Thielen, Executive Director, Partners in Care. Amidst all the need, a new coalition has sprung up, and creators are saying joining these concerns, behavioral health and homelessness, is a new approach that can maximize service. You can check the Behavioral Health and Homelessness Statewide Unified Response Group, BHH Surge site. There's information there. There's a screening tool for COVID-19 testing, if you want to take that. Screening for Behavioral Health 2. That's BHH Surge. Now, let's look into the homeless shelters. We'll talk with Connie Mitchell, Executive Director of the Institute for Human Services. 
IHS is the oldest, largest, and most comprehensive homeless services agency in Hawaii. They have nine locations. The Sumner Men's Facility can host up to 160 people. The Ka'aahi Women and Family Shelter can host just over 160 single women and family members. Mitchell says these facilities normally run pretty much at capacity, but they've had to reduce numbers, and they're using unconventional spaces in order to allow social distancing. I would say, you know, maybe we reduced by about um, 15% overall, mostly because of the families. Uh, we have really tried to help them find housing. And so as we've let them go, we haven't refilled some of those bed spaces. So we're down from about 100 to about 70 right now. Families, what's it like for them in your shelters? How many well, have you got? We have now, I think, maybe about, um, I would say about, 15 to 16 families left, and um, we are trying to help the children get used to being online. So some of the folks, you know, who have needed um, to get access to a computer, we've worked with the DOE to provide those, and we also have, um, you know, more coming in for the folks that really um, are going to need them. But for the shelter, we have enough right now. Uh, So you are maxed out. I mean, you really can't accept more people in, in the IHS system. Well, actually, we every day, as I mentioned, you know, we have um, people that leave, and then we have people that come in. So I don't want people to feel like they shouldn't call us at all, because as soon as we're able to let people go, you know, um, as uh, we're able to bring people in. Is demand growing? I think that it is. Judging from the um, time that I've spent down at the post, you know, the um, the police department's provisional outdoor screening and triage facility, the one at Ke'ehi Lagoon. So there is a place, you know, for folks to go that they can feel safer and, you know, not subject to the kinds of elements on the street that they normally would. So I think some people definitely are taking advantage of that option as well. Do you think more people are actually becoming homeless? I think, you know, what's happened is that it's it's not quite there yet, but next month is when I think you'll probably see people really reaching out even more. But I do want to say that the folks who are going to be, um, you know, in that situation, they have been working a lot of the time. So I think the homeless prevention programs that we have definitely will have greater demand. Those are programs that help people stay in their um, housing situation. You don't want people to fall into homelessness because it's much easier to help them while they're still in a home. Okay. What's going to happen next, do you think? What are you preparing for next? Well, I think one thing that I do see is that there are a lot of people who have um, addictions, alcohol and other substances, you know, opiates, and um, we really uh, need to be aware that some of those people are very much going to need support and it's an opportunity for them to probably get treatment if they want it. And if they do want it, we want to be ready. Unfortunately, I think we still have a ways to go, you know, to provide what we call treatment on demand in the sense that when somebody wants to go into treatment, it's ready and, you know, there for them. And there's the question of services for perhaps the recently incarcerated, uh, whether perhaps prisoner releases are affecting homeless numbers. I see that happening, but I don't see it like um, very pervasively, like, you know, a whole bunch of people coming out. I think slowly they're trickling out and um, they're being selective about who they're releasing. But I do believe that um, there are people that are going to need a lot more support and assistance. You know, as I mentioned, I was down at the post, you know, the um, original outdoor screening and triage center. And, you know, there are people there that definitely could use a lot of support, and that is the very reason why we're trying to send more outreach, homeless outreach and case management out there to just really link people with the services that they need. So I think, you know, we have our work cut out for us. Um, there's no shortage of need for services, and we really have to build capacity to address those needs. Connie Mitchell, Executive Director, Institute for Human Services. How are we doing at building that capacity? For that perspective, we'll turn to Scott, uh, Scott Morishige, the governor's coordinator on homelessness. He fields input from across the state. In fact, every Monday, statewide homeless advocates and service providers meet online. And believe it or not, anywhere from 200 to 400 pe- people plus log on for that meeting every week. Morishige says the COVID-19 shutdown is especially hard for unsheltered homeless because a lot of the services they need have been disrupted. The pandemic is especially hard on homeless people who are unsheltered because they're disconnected now 
from a lot of the resources that they may have depended on. So for example, groups that were providing food to people in encampments, many of those groups are no longer providing that service. In addition, um, homeless individuals who may have had you know, cell phones that were their lifelink, they no longer can find places to charge their phone. Some of the service providers may have changed you know, their procedures and their processes. So to respond to that, I think we've really had to work closely with the outreach providers who are continuing to go out. They're all essential workers. And we're also partnering with different groups to maintain access to bathroom facilities. There's this community group called Hui Aloha that is working with houseless individuals in encampments to partner with both the city and state to help maintain bathroom facilities so that we're able to keep these facilities open 24-7. So it's something that we're really looking at statewide. And then we're starting to see a lot of new programs come online. On Oahu, we saw um, the Kahi Temporary Quarantine and Isolation Center in Ivalei open up. That's only been open since April 1st, and they've served a total of 25 people as of yesterday had gone through that site. And all but three had been able to be connected to housing shelter or other long-term options following their stay there. Those options yes, are those, still available. Those options are still available and providers are continuing to house people. We also have um, the new program that the Honolulu Police Department is spearheading. Um, it's called POST, Provisional Outdoor Screening and Triage, that's set up at Katie Lagoon Beach Park. As of yesterday, there were about 60 individuals in um, the POST program. And What's the capacity also- there? I don't think that there's a hard limit. We're really limited by the park space. We're not looking at any of these places as being the final destination for homeless individuals. You know, what's it like when you look at the flow, Scott? Because you know there are 4,000 homeless on Oahu. I think the positive thing is, like I said, that we're still seeing placement into permanent housing. Do we have a giant backlog of people wanting homes? I wouldn't say that there's a backlog, but I think that there's a steady flow of individuals that want to be placed into housing. We, we all know that the economic impact um, is going to be very severe. I think the focus is making sure that we have financial resources out there to provide support, not only for those who are directly experiencing homelessness, but for those who are at imminent risk. What are you seeing, really, Scott? Have you seen increases in numbers of homeless generally? I I don't think that we're seeing a significant increase in homelessness. I think it's the same population that we've been working with. I know that we do have individuals who have come here from out of state. I think it's very visible, but it's a very small segment of the population, and we do have resources available to help return those individuals to their point of origin. And and what are you anticipating? You know, people have said maybe two or three months we might see an increase on the street. I think we may potentially see increases in homelessness as, you know, people are impacted by um, the economic slowdown. And, you know, the reality that many jobs lost may not necessarily return. I know when um, our community has the Great Recession in 2009, we did see a significant increase in homelessness between 2009 and 2016. We saw the numbers really increase dramatically, not only among single homeless individuals, but also among homeless families. And only recently did we see those numbers start to turn in the other direction. We need to be prepared for a similar type of increase, at least the possibility of it, the number of people coming out and willing to work together. That's one aspect that's been very positive for me and really shows me that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Scott Morishige, Governor's Coordinator on Homelessness. Mr. Morishige sent over figures showing the last recession sparked that wave of homelessness he mentioned. It extended over several years. All right, between the recession of 2009 and 2016, the number of homeless statewide went up 37%. Numbers of homeless finally started to come down in 2016, and by last year, homeless had decreased 19%. That's not a trend that's expected to continue. Right now, keeping people safe and in their homes is the goal of Aloha United Way's 211 hotline. The providers we just heard from say dialing 211 will begin connecting you to help. I called that number and had to leave a message for Don Alum.
three gals from Maui, contenders for a Nahoku Hanohano Music Award this year. We turn now to the BBC for an update on the coronavirus from around the globe. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Friday the 24th of April. Hello, I'm Oliver Conway. The UN launches an initiative to speed up the development of drugs and vaccines to use against COVID-19. President Trump's idea that the virus can be treated by injecting disinfectant is widely criticised. And South Korea records no new coronavirus deaths for the first time in more than a month. World leaders have agreed to work together to speed up the development of vaccines and treatments against COVID-19. The $8 billion initiative is led by the World Health Organization in Geneva, as Imogen Folks reports. From the start, the WHO has called for solidarity in tackling the pandemic. Treatments and vaccines will be developed faster if everyone works together. They will be cheaper if private companies don't compete against each other to be first with a patent. Today's initiative should ensure both those things. Neither the US nor China attended the event. There's been plenty of criticism today of President Trump's suggestion that COVID-19 could be treated by injecting disinfectant. He raised the idea at the White House news conference on Thursday evening. Then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that by injection? Well, the world's biggest manufacturer of disinfectants, Reckitt Benkiza, issued a statement saying that under no circumstances should its products be administered into the human body. Ashish Jha is Professor of Global Health and Medicine at Harvard University. We know disinfectants kill viruses and bacteria, but they also kill normal human cells. And there is absolutely no circumstances under which we should be ever ingesting this stuff, injecting it into ourselves. It will do much, much more harm than good. Of course, we know there are people who listen to him. And I'm worried that there will be some people who will take him seriously. The White House press secretary said the media had taken the president's comments out of context. Meanwhile, the number of people killed by COVID-19 in the US has now passed 50,000, according to data from Johns Hopkins University. More than 3,000 died in the past 24 hours. France has limited the sale of nicotine products in pharmacies and banned them online. It took action after researchers suggested that nicotine might have a protective effect against the coronavirus. Lucy Williamson reports. The new rules cover products like nicotine gum and patches designed to help people stop smoking. The run on nicotine products was sparked this week after researchers noticed the low number of smokers among those hospitalised with COVID-19. The theory that nicotine could play a role in blocking the virus is due to be tested at a hospital in Paris using nicotine patches. South Korea has reported no new coronavirus deaths in the past 24 hours for the first time in more than a month. The South Korean system of testing and tracing has been widely praised. Here's Laura Bicker in Seoul. Health officials here saying they are not being complacent, that they remain vigilant. They still fear a second wave. But I think for the people of South Korea, this is being seen as a huge success. Not only last week did they manage to hold an election in the middle of a pandemic, now they are showing what is possible when it comes to keeping these figures low and without a lockdown. There has been no major movement restrictions. Another country that has not imposed a lockdown is Sweden. Shops, bars and schools for under-16s remain open, but the number of infections and deaths there has been rising steadily, with more than 2,000 fatalities. However, government epidemiologist Anush Tegnell still believes the Swedish approach will help prevent a second wave of infections. We know very little about the immunity of this disease, but I think most of the experts in Sweden agree that some kind of immunity we definitely will have because a lot of people that have been tested so far, they produce antibodies and normally antibodies do give protection. The UN human rights chief Michelle Bachelet has accused governments of using the coronavirus pandemic to stifle criticism and restrict information. She made the comments as police in India arrested the editor of a website after he published news about alleged government corruption and food shortages. With billions of people around the world stuck at home, many are going online to find new cooking ideas. Banana bread is the most popular recipe, but according to Google Trends, bamboo shoots have seen the biggest rise in searches. Here's Siobhan Leahy. 
In the last month, more people in Asia watched cooking tutorials on YouTube than anywhere else in the world, mostly in Sri Lanka, Indonesia and Singapore. But it's recipes for bamboo shoots that have seen a 4,850% rise in searches. Bamboo shoots are mild, crunchy, can bulk up soups and stir-fries. Plus, they're an ideal choice for novice chefs as they're really easy to cook. And that's the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for The Conversation comes from PBS Hawaii. Insights at PBS Hawaii features a live weekly discussion on the effects of COVID-19 in Hawaii, 8 p.m. Thursday, April 30th, pbshawaii.org. I'm Ira Plato. This week on Science Friday, virologist Paul Offit talks about the risks of working too quickly to develop a corona vaccine without adequate time for testing. When you're talking about trying to get a vaccine out there in one to two years, you're definitely talking about skipping parts of this process. And we celebrate 30 years of the Hubble Space Telescope. It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Starting this afternoon at 1. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, locations, Haleakala Waldorf School and Honolulu Waldorf School. Last Friday, the Honolulu Museum of Art announced that all part-time and seasonal staff and about a third of full-time staff were laid off. The announcement said the firings are due to closures mandated by the COVID-19 pandemic, and they expect a long road back to normal. Bishop Museum, also closed at the moment, is holding firm, according to Executive Director Melanie Ide. She says they've secured support through the Federal CARES Act, and we'll take a closer look at that unique Hawaii institution in the very near future. What about the Honolulu Theater for Youth, founded in 1955? Among the 18 staff members there are some of that rare breed in this town, paid actors. According to marketing manager Ray Koho, funding is assured through this season, but that ends after May. Hopes are up, however, for a new endeavor. Eric Johnson, artistic director at HTY, says the crew there has done a pivot. We turned our theater company into a media company, and we are partnering with Hawaii News Now and Nello Media Group. So we basically turned our theater company into a production company, and we're producing 30-minute television episodes and online classes and trying to think about how we can keep serving our audience in this time when we really need to connect and have art made about the experiences all these families are going through. We're delighted to be able to try out this new form. Oh, okay, so you're creating videos for kids about what we're all going through now, and they'll be aired on three commercial stations and on HTY's YouTube channel. One of the things that really made this possible is HTY has an ensemble of artists on staff. And so, you know, people like Moses Good and Junior Tesoro and really seasoned performers and writers and creators have already been creating original work. And so when this moment happened, the speed we were able to transition is really about us having these amazing artists already here in our company and in our community. That's a terrific point to make. I mean, even without COVID, even without that, you know, you almost seem like you're dealing with airy-fairy stuff when you're trying to make the point about the unique power of performance. Yeah, yeah I... You know, I think the field's going to learn a lot about, like, what is live performance and, and how can you connect. The performance doesn't end, you know, just when the episode is over, but it really is a conversation in some way with your audience and sparking creative ideas of how you pass this time together. That's one of the ways that we're sort of connected with our theater roots. Eric Johnson, Artistic Director at Honolulu Theater for Youth. Says episode four of The Highway, HTY's new video productions coming up. It'll be on commercial stations, the HTY website, and their YouTube channel. And there are activities and study guides, too. The theme of episode three that was released this year, uh, this week, was fear. 
Now, even before the COVID crisis, Hawaii Opera Theater made an administrative change early this year, folding the position of artistic director into the duties of Andrew Morgan, who's now general director of the Hawaii Opera Theater, HOT. Kudos again to the deft actions of the board. The 2020-21 season includes Madam Butterfly and Orpheus in the Underworld. And Mr. Morgan says a lot will have to go into staging those productions. It's not just a matter of will boys still be open in the fall, but will audiences feel comfortable going into a theater that seats 2,000? Will our orchestra, the white uh, symphony orchestra that, that does such a wonderful job accompanying our operas, will they be comfortable going into a crowded pit? Will our chorus be willing to be, you know, everything is close quarters with a large-scale opera. And so I don't want anyone to feel that their health is being, you know, compromised. And so it's really going to be testing the waters or kind of putting your finger in the air and see where the wind is blowing for the next several months. For now, you know, we're not having to make any systemic changes to the company, and I'm certainly not planning on any layouts at this time. We we have a lean and mean staff already, and I, I don't want to uh, change that. And we are all very busy uh, planning and trying to generate some content that will keep opera alive on the islands uh, for our patrons. Oh, what do you need? <laughs> <laughs> what do we need? We need people to, to remember that the arts of all types are important, even when you can't experience them right now. Mm. Uh, we need people to remember that they, they will be here for you when this all blows over, but only if you know people are, are thinking about us and in ways of, of giving or, or even just reaching out to us and saying, we love you, we want, to, want, want you to come back. You know, kind messages are quite welcome at this time as we're all feeling a little stranded, right? And you're feeling like uh, you you can batten down the hatches and go ahead for maybe two or three months, have you? Yeah, yeah. I think all depends on so many things. Yes, certainly two to three months. I I really think through the end of this calendar year, as long as we can continue generating some revenue through donations. Obviously, one of the the biggest revenue generators we have uh, for us as a company is our annual Opera Ball which is November 14th this year. Who knows what's going to happen between now and then, <laughs> but, but I'm, I'm already guessing that it won't happen quite as, you know, um, planned. I have to imagine it's twirling around, all dressed up in our own kitchens or living rooms. <laughs> there you go, the virtual yeah. opera ball, yes. You know, and, and certainly, you know, one of the things, I, I do think everybody's going to be really ready for a party once we feel comfortable doing that. And and probably, I, I think the better way for us, and this is something I'm, I'm reaching out to Hawaii Symphony Orchestra and Ballet Hawaii and, and also the Honolulu Museum of Art, to, to see if we can think about collaborating on a big fundraising event, you know, once we're able to do that. We've been talking with Andrew Morgan, General Director at Hawaii Opera Theater. At the end of 2019, environmental activists were elated by the passage of Bill 40 on Oahu, the nation's strongest plastics containment law. In the age of COVID-19, however, Hawaii Island, for example, has temporarily suspended its plastic bag ban, and plastics producers are seeing an opening. Nicole Chatterson of Zero Waste Oahu says Bill 40 should have no problem going forward because it simply replaces single-use plastic items with alternatives. Still, Raphael Bergstrom, Executive Director of Sustainable Coastline, says there's reason for concern. Right now it's a challenging time for grassroots networks because we're so built on interaction, community building, face-to-face. All that work is done so much on the ground. So I think that people are still figuring out how to how to motivate through grassroots actions. But what's also really cool is we're seeing everybody trying to rise to the challenge and figuring out new interactive ways to engage communities. 
So there's challenges erupting all over social media, trying to activate people to think about their daily activities because we're so locked into our daily activities in a very small space. And I think that a lot of us are seeing opportunity within that. You mean to change our habits? Have you seen any good ideas out there? So we started at Sustainable Coastline Tory, we started this anti-social cleanup challenge. And the idea was, since we can't be out on the beaches cleaning, like what can we do in our own homes to clean up? And, and it really gets into the idea that clean beaches start at home. So our day-to-day -day activities, as simple as DIY projects of making your own toothpaste, which eliminates the need for plastic toothpaste tubes, or how people are composting and creating at-home gardens using wakashi for compost and applying it to say, let's have some self-resilience at home. And that in itself is cleaning up because we're not going to rely on so many imported goods that are wrapped in plastic. So a lot of people are like, how do we get closer to just going back to normal? Let's get back to normal. Let's get back to normal. But this is an opportunity to create a new normal. Our focus right now is building our systems behind the scenes to allow us to get more information out that talks about what does a new normal look like. How do we rethink everything from using our day-to-day -day things to how are we traveling and traveling to give rather than traveling to take. Can we accelerate towards renewable energy now? Can we accelerate towards half of our food production coming from Hawaii? Because it's cliche, but every day has to be Earth Day, and that has to be the mindset that we take out of all of this. It's every single day we should be reconnecting with how we interact with the Earth and how we aren't always just taking. We've been talking with Raphael Bergstrom, Executive Director of Sustainable Coastlines. something when you get a review in the New York Times and the LA Review of Books and Vanity Fair and more. Kavai Strong Washburn has done it with his debut novel, Sharks in the Time of Saviors. It's a book about a boy with gifts and how the rest of his family is affected by that. It begins on Hawaii Island, as did the author. Now a writer and software engineer, Kavai lives with his wife and children in Minneapolis. So I started this book 10 years ago. So probably a year and a half or two years before that, so 12 years ago, I had first gotten that image of a child being carried from the water by a shark, right, being saved from drowning by a shark. But at the time, I had just started writing, and I was doing other writing. I was writing short stories. I had another novel that I was writing. And so I didn't think much of the image at the time. Why were you writing? I, because I love I love reading. I think that's just how I started. You know, I don't. It's really hard to describe. I don't know why anybody does any sort of art, right? Why does somebody build sculpture? Why does somebody paint? You know, a large canvas. There are things inside you and things in the world you experience, and you want to find a way to express those. And and at some level, you experience the art that other people have created, and it does things to you. It moves you. It engages your your mind and your emotions, and so that makes you want to be a part of it. You know, the same way it is for music, right? You listen to a good song, or you go see a band live and you love it and you're like oh I want to do that right and so that's yeah that's I'm gonna go really... home and pick up a guitar not really <laughs> no, <laughs> no but you no. know I mean it's for some people right I feel like people that end up creating art I think that they come through it because they have that experience and then there's that little nudge to be like well maybe I can do that you know and I don't know where that comes from right I, I can't explain why I started writing except that I had read books that I loved and they like, changed me right so like Oh, man, so many. You know, I think one of the Hawaiian authors that I make it a point to always bring up is Lois Ann Yamanaka, because I can remember when I first read Wild Meat and the Bully Burgers, and I think I was like 20, and I was, I was kind of burned out at the end of a semester of college, and I was finally just like, oh, I'm just going to read something I like 
And I had read, you know, I'd had to read some literature for, like, English classes in college, and so I'd gotten exposed to some of the, like, quote-unquote literary canon of the mainland, which is, like, Hemingway and Austin and things like that. And so I was kind of like, oh, I wonder if there's, are there writers from, from like, Hawaii that have done things like this? And so I found a Lois and Yamanaka book at the library at the university and read it, and I'm pretty sure it was Wild Meat and the Bully Burger. And I was Wait, like, Wait, University Whoa. of where? Portland? Uh, university of Portland. Yeah, I think they had a coffee at the University of Portland in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and you went and what? Yeah, I was just I was blown away because it was the first book I'd read where I could tell that she was writing first and foremost for the island, right? If other readers wanted to join that ride and get on the ride and experience what it meant to grow up in like rural poverty in Hawaii, then they could come along for that ride. But if they couldn't do it, if they couldn't handle it, then, you know, I just reading that book, you could tell Lois was like, look, here's this story. And if you're interested in, in understanding it and you want to feel what it likes, what it's like to be in Hawaii, then here it is. And I could tell that the readers she had in her mind were people from the island. And so I read that book and, and I think that that started some gears turning. And mm-hmm. there was there were other books I read. You know, I love Barbara Kingsolver. I think anybody who's familiar with the Poisonwood Bible can kind of see some fingerprints on the Sharks in the Time of Saviors. But that's, I remember my wife and I were living in D.C. and we were driving out to her brother's house in Virginia and it was a long drive. And so we brought a book and we just took turns when we weren't driving, we would read it out loud to each other. And that was the Poisonwood Bible. So I can still remember these like country roads in Virginia and my wife and I taking turns reading this book out loud and what an incredible experience it was. So yeah, so let me see. Geez, like so many. Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison is another one that when I got a chance to read her work again, I was like, oh, this has nothing to do with all the standard, you know, the standard like subjects and and interests of of all of the writers that came before you know you compare that to something like i don't know Saul Bellow or Ernest Hemingway or whoever like the people that are in the major canon that they make you read in in English classes and it was so different and it was you know just so beautiful to read Dennis Johnson's uh, Jesus's son which is this great little set of connected short stories that make this novel about a drug addict that's kind of stumbling through his life and he has these moments of incredible, terrible mistakes and these awful things he does, but he has all these moments of clarity and and almost reaching these epiphanies. And for some reason, I don't know why it works. Like you feel for this character that's like generally a kind of despicable human, but it's another one of those books where I remember reading it and I was like, I want to do this. Like how how did I read this book and I'm like a different person when it's done? And like, I want, I want to do that. Like, I love reading and I, I want to write something that I would love to read. I mean, there were so many things I thought you miraculously handled pretty well. Um, <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know how you manage two very tender and very real uh, hookups in this thing. <laughs> yeah, I really worked on that, you know, and that was something, too, with the, you know, with the family living kind of just on the knife's edge of poverty. I didn't want that to be the sort of standard, stereotypical rendering of poverty where I feel like so often when, when you encounter characters and they're living in hard economic conditions, like one of them's a drug addict or they have an abusive relationship or they're mean to their kids or something. And I really wanted to write a family that's like, you know, the families that I knew and even at some parts of my life, you know, I have, I've had family members that have struggled with poverty and it doesn't necessarily feel awful it's hard but you can still have love and happiness and like sexuality right and these characters especially the parents in particular i wanted them to be like i tried to figure out a way to describe their bodies to kind of point to these are not like supermodels these are not people that would necessarily be considered wildly attractive but they love each other and they love each other's bodies and they're like you know they have this physical love for each other that transcends the poverty they're dealing with so i'm glad you picked up on some of that because i worked on that really hard mm-hmm. <laughs> i really wanted that to come through strong uh-huh. but you've got some really great dialogue in this thing uh, thank you i worked on that really hard i think it's a really hard part of writing for me is getting uh, the dialogue to be something that I forget where I read it first in craft books. I had read something that said that like dialogue is something that people do to each other. Right. So you have to think of it as an action at any given moment, the same way people in a room moving physically around each other, touching each other, all those sorts of things. Dialogue is the same sort of thing, but it's just happening, you know, with words. So finding a way to make the, the things they're saying be active things that are that, you know, that they're freighted with meaning at some level is uh, it's a struggle. It's really hard for me. Um, I loved it because I think I've learned I learned almost everything I know about the father through dialogue. <laughs> and it was humor 
it wasn't expository. It was through his, his humor. Did you feel like, I mean, you are Hawaiian. I'm not. That's really important to mention. I'm glad you're asking. I'm not Native Hawaiian. My my mother is black and my father is white. They met at the University of Hawaii at Hilo. Uh, my father was a graduate student. He was in music. I think he was in his doctoral program at that point, uh, finishing off his, his doctoral program. And they met at the university and then they got married and lived there and raised, you know, me and my brother. But no, I'm not Native Hawaiian. But I grew up in a community that was very much a like you know mixed ethnic rural Hawaii community and when I sat down to write this and I started thinking about it and I knew that I wanted it to be a book that that exposed readers to parts of the islands they weren't familiar with and I wanted to talk about the colonial history and the elements of of mythology and legend that were very present in my life growing up that I wanted to to express in a way that would help people learn about the islands more than they knew Uh, I, I felt like if the characters weren't at some level actually Native Hawaiian, that it would feel as if something were being appropriated or I was taking some elements that are truly, I mean, you could think of them as Kama Aina, but, but really are just like Kanaka elements, right? These are elements that are most closely tied to Native Hawaiians. And I felt like if I didn't have the characters actually have their blood tied to the islands, that it would feel in some ways like I wasn't presenting as, as truthful and important a version of the islands as I wanted to. And it also allowed me to make, make it a point to discuss the history of things like the language and how the language, like, you know, there was an active program to annihilate Olelo Hawaii and to annihilate the Hawaiian people in general. And so I knew that if I wanted to talk about those things, that doing it without characters that were at some level Native Hawaiian wouldn't feel right. Well, how do you feel? I mean, do you feel of the land there growing up in Honoka? Very much, very much. And I don't think I would have written this book if I didn't feel at some level it was a reflection of of me. And I think that the interesting thing was I didn't realize that that's what would happen. And I started writing this and it became this very interesting process of self-realization in a way that I didn't expect at all. Uh, Because at the time that I started writing it, I didn't know exactly what I was writing or what it was going to be about entirely. And it was very interesting having things that were in my subconscious. They were unearthed while I was writing and I didn't know where they came from. So things like, for instance, the Amakua or, you know, some of the other, like the, some of the times where I kind of reference Pele or things like that, some of that just happened. It wasn't, it wasn't something that I had set out ahead of time to discuss. And in a few cases, I, I was like, wait, you know, I need to go look this up. Is this something I just made up or is this actually a part of the, the mythology of the islands? And it was always very rewarding when I would see that some of the things that I was writing down that I thought were at some level serendipitous or I didn't know where they came from ended up being tied to, you know, very closely to Native Hawaiian legends and mythology. Uh, And I could feel this resonance when I was doing that. I know it sounds weird and kind of, it sounds a little kind of wishy-washy and like something magic was happening, but there were parts of me that I learned a lot more about. And I I really recognized that, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Kama'aina, you know, I'm I'm, I'm of the land and there's no place else in the world I've lived that I have ever felt as at home as I do in Hawaii. I never feel as comfortable as I do when I step off a plane, even at like the Honolulu International Airport. And I could just go out to the courtyard and like feel the air and the temperature and the humidity and, and see the clouds. Something about all those things, my body just it like exhales, right? It just feels <laughs> like it's at home. And I can't, I try to explain it to people and I know it sounds ridiculous, but that is where my body just feels like it is in the place it's supposed to be. Uh, and, and some of those feelings and things were really dredged up while I was writing this, this novel. And it was, it was wonderful to experience, but I hadn't expected it at all. And it helped me learn a lot about myself and who I think of myself as a person. We know what you're talking about. Kavai Strong Washburn discusses his debut novel, Sharks in the Time of Saviors, in a live virtual talk story with Don Wallace from The Shop, that community vortex there in Kaimuki. And that happens at 3 o'clock tomorrow, Saturday. Check The Shop's Instagram on that. Now here's Kupawa, Lihao and Kellen Pack, Nahoku nominees again this year.
Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Phil Cousineau, author of Burning the Midnight Oil. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the mysteries of the night. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a mission to create transformative experiences through art and committed to standing with the community during this time. Updates on reopening at honolulumuseum.org. The Mayo Clinic calls meditation a fast, easy way to reduce stress and avoid unproductive worrying. Researchers from Johns Hopkins University looked at nearly 19,000 meditation studies and published results in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2014. They said, valid studies suggest mindful meditation can ease anxiety, depression, and pain. Jimmy Toyama has been meditating for decades. As founder of Mindful Hawaii, I asked Jimmy, what is mindfulness? Well, mindfulness is being present at the moment and being non-judgmentally aware of where you are and what you're thinking about. Um, that's basically it in a nutshell. What, what's good about this? Well, it, actually, when you, when you arrive at that state, the capacity for you to become more empathetic is greater. Because empathy is the foundation for compassion, for love, and all those kinds of things, yeah. What people are living through is yeah. the loss of their jobs. Mm -hmm. How do I sit there not knowing how I'm going to pay for my food? Well, that's the, that's the context in which we live today, right now. And out of that context comes a lot of fear and anxiety. And it is that anxiety, in, in dealing with that anxiety, is I think a very critical component of how do we make it through. And I think mindfulness has a place in all of this. Um, that's where mindfulness comes, by the way, uh, in handy, you know, in terms of dealing with this time and space question in terms of self-isolation. And the other thing is that when we're speaking about anxiety, the anxiety is, about, is, is, is the uncertainty that's out there. But we really deep down underneath our surface concerns and anxiety is this real question about our mortality and we don't we don't address it every day but but it's there in our deep unconscious well it's a little more present these days yeah you know it, it comes uncomfortably out, right? so it? yeah so it leads you to do things um like hoarding for example you buy more than you need for the present moment when you're in touch with your deeper self and you relax and you're mindful, uh, your tendency to do less of that. <laughs> How do you get in touch with your mindful self? Well, there's all kinds of ways actually to do that. Some people get actually traumatized actually into becoming awake and becoming aware and becoming mm -hmm. more mindful. You know, really? Yeah. Many pathways, says Jimmy Toyama, the person Dr. Amy Brown says kidnapped her into mindfulness. A nutrition specialist, Dr. Brown has been teaching at the John A. Burns School of Medicine for 20 years. She now teaches mindful meditation. But the thing is, these are not ordinary times. Uncertainty is at an all-time high. If my job is gone and very well may not come back, how is mindfulness going to help with that? I think that if you act like a lion or a jaguar going through the jungle as your paws press on the grass beneath you, that's all they're thinking about in the present moment. Their goal is food. They're in the present. And mm -hmm. people can be in the present too, even in the most heinous points of danger. And what you do is you start to focus. This is the situation. You accept this little worry point. Worry is a good thing because it makes you act. But so uh -huh. you act and you make a plan. And you spend all your activity in your brain acting on what it is that you're going to do. 
You have a plan. I mean, so you don't sit in worry. I'm not talking about being positive now. What I'm talking about is being effective. Okay, this is the situation. This is what I have to do to change it. And then immediately you're in the driver's seat. And then if you're in the driver's seat, no matter what happens, you know you did what you could with what you had at that time. Amy, you're a nutritionist, and a lot of people point to nutrition's role in keeping one's immunity up. But you also practice meditation. Does that work on a physical level? Adrenaline short-term is all right, and it helps you to act accordingly. But long-term, high levels of stress decrease immunity, and they actually make us vulnerable to viruses. And that's from uh, Dr. James Gordon of the Center for Mind and Body Medicine. And so it's important not to get stressed out. And sometimes you just have to pull back from what you know is stressing you. Dr. Amy Brown. If you'd like encouragement in that direction, the first Mindful Hawaii newsletter came out this week. Check it out. There are many different meditation practices pursued in nooks and crannies all across Hawaii. See what meditation does for art making at Mayumi Oda's retreat in Kealakekua. But you know, really, there's no substitute for trying it. Your sax player, Reggie Padilla, from his album Lessons from Oliver. It's lessons from a stay-at-home dad-slash-full-time musician. <laughs> Hano Hano Award nominee again this year. Oh, well, hey, that's about it for this Aloha Friday. Mahalo for your company. Did you like the show? Do you have any ideas for us? Please call our talkback line at 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Listen to past Aloha Friday shows and all of the conversation on the HPR website. The program's produced by Lillian Song, Harrison Patino, Jason Ubai, and Russell Subiono. Our theme music's written and performed by Gypsy808. Sure hope you like that here. Hope you've enjoyed the Nahoku nominees. We'll continue with that, too. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Let's take care of each other, okay? Aloha kako. Catherine Cruz will be back on Monday with more of The Conversation. Mm-hmm.